Okay, let's begin verse 1 of chapter 30. The words of Agur, son of Yaka, the oracle. The man declares, I am weary, O God. I am weary, O God, and worn out. Surely I am too stupid to be a man. I have not the understanding of a man. I have not learned wisdom, nor I have knowledge of the Holy One. Who has ascended to heaven and come down? Who has gathered the wind in his fists? Who has wrapped up the waters in a garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name? What is his son's name? Surely you know. Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you and you be found to be a liar. All right, let's stop there and let's go back and break that down. So right away we see a change in tone, right, from the rest of the Proverbs. The curse starts on an, an admission of weakness and ignorance. He starts off by saying, I am weary, O God. I am too stupid. I lack understanding. I am not wise, nor do I have the knowledge of man or of God. Now, this does sound quite different from the other texts in the Proverbs. It's actually taking a much more personal tone, right? He's addressing God at the beginning of this. It's the tone of someone who's tired of striving on their own and has finally come in desperation to God for help. So he immediately follows up his pretty harsh self-evaluation, right? He calls himself stupid. But he immediately follows up his admission of lack of knowledge with the grandeur of God. Right away, he says, who can go where God is? Who can gather the wind in their fists? Who can swoop up all the waters of the earth at once? So it sounds a lot more like some of the Psalms that you'll read, and even Job. Remember in chapter 38 of Job, when God himself speaks to Job, and God says, where were you exactly? When I laid the foundations of the world, this is what Agur is admitting to here. What he's saying, though, in this context is look at yourself realistically as compared to the all-powerful creator of the universe. When going to God, when going to God for wisdom, look at yourself realistically. Can you gather up the seas in a garment? Can you gather up the winds in your fists? When we approach God, we first have to understand that we are not able to stand before Him. We have to understand our place is so far below Him that He shouldn't care about us. It is not due to us that God, it's not due to us that God would stoop and answer us. But He does, and it sends from His kindness and His love. But that's not all he shows us. He shows us how, he shows us how we're to approach God with, with great humility. And then he encourages us with this. With great humility, he encourages us. Every word of God proves true. He is a shield. He is a refuge. You see what he's doing here, right? He's laying out for us. I am weak and foolish. God is all-powerful and all-knowing. But he himself is my refuge and my strength. God doesn't owe us anything. 
And yet he gives us his, his truth, his word, and he shields and protects us. It's starting to sound a lot like the gospel, isn't it? Right? Here we are in Proverbs, and it's starting to sound like the gospel. These are the first two steps in, underst- in any good understanding of the gospel. Always start with two things. Who is God and who are you? You can't understand the rest of the gospel until we've made those first two steps. Agur is laying it out for us. God is perfect. We aren't. Also, there's a warning here. He ends with a warning because God's word, because God's word is absolutely true, the warning he gives is don't add to it. Don't add to the words of God. Now, that seems pretty basic at first, right? Don't add words to the Bible. Don't add words to what God's saying. But this actually means a lot more than just adding specific words to the Bible. It does mean that. It does mean that we don't take the place of God. We don't add to Scripture. If someone comes to you and says, God has a word for you, I, th- I think you should have a red flag that goes up, unless they're showing from here. It's a big red flag for me when anyone says, God told me to tell you this. Um, if it agrees with this, we can talk about it. But what he's doing here, he's telling us, don't add to what God is saying. So there's, there's a, a basic and, and pretty common temptation for us because we are almost always tempted to look at God's Word through the lens of our experience and through the lens of the world around us. So we, we interpret God's word, but we take our experiences and, and the wisdom of the world with us, or at least we're tempted to, when we go to God's truth. And that is a temptation. We look back at what is said, instead of treating it as concrete truth, we oftentimes take our modern wisdom and experiences and we read them into the text of the Bible. To be clear, this is adding to the Bible. What that does is it gives us, if we, if we approach God, the Word in that way, it gives us an out from having to struggle with the harsh realities of, of Scripture. Because if you read Scripture, it will rub against you. It will be uncomfortable and awkward from time to time. Because what God's Word does is it brings truth. And truth hurts sometimes. But when we bring our experiences and we, and we take liberties with interpreting the gospel and, and the word in those ways, we give ourselves an out to not have to struggle with what the Bible is saying. So this is a worldview issue. You either let your experiences and the world around you inform the Bible, or you let the Bible inform your experiences and help you understand what's going on in the world. You see, there are, very, there are two very different things. There are two very different ways of approaching God's word. So to sum up the first part of chapter 30, we would say that that we are weak and weary. God is strong and righteous, but also kind and loving. And if we want to seek wisdom in this life, look to God and his truth, not your own understanding. Let's keep reading in chapter 30, verses 7 through 9, we'll go to next. And and verses 7 through 9 are really at the core 
of what the entire prover- the other entire chapter in the Proverbs is, is teaching us, the theme through chapter 30. Well, actually, if we actually apply these verses, this is not only enlightening, but this is pivotal in our lives. This could be uh, life-changing if we apply it. Let's listen closely to Agur's prayer. Two things I ask of you. Deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me. Lest I be full and and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of the Lord. In this proverb, the writer only wants two things in all of his life. If I have nothing else, God, just give me these two things. So let's break down those two requests real quick. Keep me far from falsehood and do not make me wealthy or poor. First, let's look at falsehood. Previously, Agur stated that the word of God is proven to be true. God is truth, but men lie. He's not only saying, keep me from being a liar, but also keep me from believing lies. Keep falsehood completely away from me. Lying is one of the chief ways that we are tempted. We lie to ourselves and we lie to each other, and we let the world lie to us. It's a chief tool in temptation. Who was the first liar? It was the devil in the garden, wasn't it? He, tried, he lied to Eve to commit the first human act of rebellion against God. Not only do we believe in the lies of the flesh, the devil, and the world, but we lie to ourselves and each other continually. Part of the Christian process of sanctification is the removal of lies from our lives. What did Jesus say in in the high priestly prayer of John 17? He asked the Father, sanctify them in the truth. Your what? Your word is truth. Jesus willed for his followers to be sanctified or to be made holy, to be made set apart. That's what that word sanctification means, right? As a, as a reminder, we have justification when we believe in Jesus, but the rest of your Christian life is this process of sanctification where God rips one thing after another out of your life. And in that process, that word sanctified means to be set aside, to be removed. And the other word for that is holy. So God is making us holy through the process of sanctification. So Jesus willed for his followers to be sanctified, to be made holy and set apart. And that process he knew would involve God's word. When we read and engage in God's word, it is truly sanctifying. Why? Because it has a way of pointing out God's truth to our ears that, that are used to hearing lies. Because we're used to, we're, we're practiced in hearing lies. We hear lies our whole life. And, and the word of God teaches us what truth sounds like. It teaches us what it sounds like to hear the truth. It tunes our ears to hear the truth. When we are regularly engaging 
in God's Word the lies that the devil tells us or that we are tempted to tell have a distinct dissonance to the truth. It's like in music when you hear two notes that don't go well together. Something is off. It doesn't sound right. We are either in harmony with God's truth or we become tone deaf to the lies of the world around us. And that's why we need to be practiced in hearing the truth. What was the second thing? What was the second thing that, that Agur asks of God? He says, more than anything else in the world, he's, right, second thing, keep me from lies and what? Make me neither rich nor poor. Now, this is the only spot that I know of in all of the Proverbs that says, do not make me wealthy. Here we are in chapter 30, and this is the first time that we're hearing anything of that nature of keep me from wealth. That's a, that's a very distinct change that's happening. Now, most of the Proverbs show how God blesses those who are prudent uh, and wise, sometimes with riches. There's a lot in here in the Proverbs about wealth. I did a sermon for one of our sister churches called The Bridge down in Snohomish over the summer. They were also going through Proverbs. And when I, when I went down there, they asked me to teach on money and wealth. So to see all of the Proverbs that have anything to do with wealth or even economy and work is, is overwhelming. It has a lot to say about it. The Proverbs say much about engaging in wisdom with money and wealth and work. But here we see for the first time a statement that says, Lord, don't give me too much. But please don't give me too little. Too much and I'll forget about how much I actually rely on you. Too little and I'll go to unrighteous means to get my bread, profaning your law. The writer says, give me the food that is needful for me. That sounds familiar. Because we see another echo of the same line in the thought of the New, in the New Testament. When we re, and we repeat it here every week. When Jesus says, pray like this. And give us this day our daily bread. Give us today what is needful for today. The writer warns us that if we have too much, we are tempted to forget our reliance on God. And that's what becoming comfortable in anything does. It causes us to forget how reliant we are on God for every little thing. And so the writer here says, Lord, save me from that temptation. Now, save me from that because I'll forget my reliance on you. And if we have too little, then we're surrounded by other unrighteous temptations. There's a much larger principle uh, much larger guiding principle here that God teaches us again and again throughout Scripture. Now, in the wilderness, as we read in the, in the uh, reading of the law, when the Israelites were given food from heaven or manna, they were given some each day. And what did the text say? They were given exactly enough that they needed to eat. If someone gathered a lot, they measured it, and it was one omer. 
however much that is, it's enough for them to eat that day. And if they gathered just a little bit, they still had one omer. But what happened with the people who said, I'm going to gather an omer and then I'm going to, I'm going to put some aside and, and save it for later? Remember what happened to it? It, it grew worms and stank. What was God teaching the Israelites? That saving is wrong? No. That planning for the future is wrong? No. So what is he teaching them? He's not saying don't ever prepare. He's not saying don't ever save for the future. But he is teaching them, and thereby teaching you and me, to remain radically reliant on God for what you have today. That may include putting some aside for the future, but there are times in our lives when we, when we can't or when we're barely, but we, but we know that God gives us what we need for that day, just enough for that day. The Israelites had that lesson displayed to them explicitly in the desert, and that was to teach them something through experience but that was written down also to teach us through their experience. There's nothing sinful about having money. If there was, Proverbs would have pointed it out earlier on. And neither is there anything sinful in the lack thereof. But the principle is much larger. When we try and take these things and, and we try and make it as small as as money or food or supplies for each day, we're, we're looking at too small of a thing, right? We're, we're thinking about the things that are right in front of us. The principle that Scripture is trying to teach us is a heart issue. It's much bigger than that. Now, what the principle is, is that God Himself, God is the giver of all things. We need to believe that. If we have too much or too little, we're tempted to be swayed towards self-reliance. If we have too much or too little, we're tempted towards self-reliance. Or more accurately, the lie of self-reliance. There is nothing that is not God's already. Right? He owns all things, and to Him all things will return. So there is wisdom found in being okay with what he gives you. Now the word for that would be contentment. Contentment. 1 Timothy 6 put it this way. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world... We cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. Contentment for the Christian is difficult. It's not guaranteed. It's something that we actually have to practice. And for humans in general, I would argue, it's contrary to your nature to be content. We desire what we don't have. What we don't have yet is what we want. It's what drives us, what compels us. 
whether we have plenty or little, our desire is always for more. But the Bible teaches us repeatedly to look to the provider with humility. And if we do that, we will be content with what He has given us. Reliance on God, radical reliance on God, leads to contentment with His provision. The more reliant we are on God, the more content we are with what He's given us. Which ultimately, ultimately leads us to gratefulness, to thankfulness. There you have it. If you were waiting for it, I'm not going to preach three days after Thanksgiving without mentioning thankfulness. All right, I was, I was going to bring it around eventually. Here we are. But what is thankfulness? In essence, what is thankfulness? It's, it's looking at God's provision, looking at God, God's provision for all areas of your life with the knowledge of who we are, humility, and being content with the gifts that we have. Knowing that what we have received is a gift and we don't deserve it. So these three things are uniquely tied together almost like a chain. Reliance, provision, contentment. Reliance, radical reliance on God's provision, contentment with God's plans, and then thankfulness for God's gifts. We cannot be thankful without being content for what we have. And we cannot be content with what we have without thankfulness springing up from it. One of the chief lies that we believe is that we need more. Or that we deserve more. In fact, myriads of sin and temptation come from believing that more is better. That we need more or that more is due to us. So many sins come from that. How many spouses would cheat on each other if they realized what a gift they have in marriage? How many people would steal from an employer or from, from somewhere else if they understood that their need is already taken care of in Christ? So now, if you're tracking with me, you could say, Andrew, you don't understand the way things work. Uh, the desire for more, to excel, to achieve, uh, to compete, to strive, is what drives the world. The desire for more is one of the things that causes us to advance uh, as humankind. And to that, I would say, yeah, that's a good point. But how's that working out for us? Right? The, the competition constantly between each other to move forward, to advance, how is that actually working out for us? See, we can point to different amazing achievements in society without a doubt, and we have gained many achievements. I am thankful for them. I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for asthma medicine that kept me alive when I was younger. Many of you wouldn't be here right now if it wasn't for modern medicine. Right? These, are, these are beautiful things. These are gifts. So, so society, humankind, has gained many things, but I'd be hard-pressed to say we've gained much as far as God's concerned. You see, God put the desire in us to grow and to achieve. But sin tainted it. Sin made it covetousness. Sin made it competition. 
Sin made us willing to hurt someone else to gain something. That desire mixed with covetousness, discontent, mixed with pride, that tells us we deserve more. That tells us we, we deserve more than God has given us, discontent, leads us to all the abuses that we see in the world right now. You say, well, then what's the answer? Are we to stop trying to achieve? Are we to stop trying to gain? Of course not, because godliness with contentment is great gain. See, our problem is we're shooting too low. Desiring small things that we don't need when God has for us great gain. Great gains that benefit not only ourselves, but each other. If we have contentment, we do not simply stop trying to improve, right? Being content doesn't stop you from trying to be better. It just makes you thankful for what you have. And I would argue in some ways we can try to improve, to gain, to become better even more fearlessly when we are content. Our drive to do better in contentment is not simply the desire for more, but our drive stems in contentment from our thankfulness to God. So it is, is gospel motivation that causes the Christian to excel, to be driven, to do better, to affect change. If we understand the gospel, we apply that, then we then we do want to do better. We do want to achieve. We want, we want to become better people. We want to work harder. We want to be better spouses. We want to be better sons and daughters. We want to be better parents, right? But, but our, we are propelled by our thankfulness in the gospel. We're not propelled by fear. We're not propelled by competition with someone else, trying to be better than someone else. No, we try our best without fear of losing because what we have already is enough. I want to look at a few of the other verses uh, in chapter 30 that, that help us with this point. Now, the last half of the chapter, if you were to look at it all together, uh, probably I think from 15 on, uh, are called numerical proverbs. I love these. This is, a, this is a beautiful thing in the proverbs. Sometimes can be a little bit confusing. And the numerical Proverbs have undoubtedly, well, we've run into them before in different parts of, of Proverbs. But as we read through the book, we'll see them. But th this is a specific formula that's used in order to teach in the Proverbs and in other parts of Scripture as well. Now the trick is to remember that this is a poetic tool, okay, not necessarily a formula in Scripture. And I say that because when, when we look at this as a poetic tool, we, we know that um, it's communicated in poetry, not necessarily has to be the same form every time. So I've read these before. I only mention this because I've read these before, and it'll say th like three things and four things, and I'm always like, wait, why are they three? Why are there four? Like, what's, what's going on here? Is the fourth one, you know, more important than the others? I get kind of hung up on that. Now, what the writers in Scripture do is they use these as a, as a tool to communicate a, a beautiful truth, okay? Um, 
Now, that poetic tool is just used as a backbone for the wisdom statement. Our job is to see the poetic tool and ask, okay, what's being communicated by that tool? What am I to struggle with? What am I to learn from? So the tool that you'll see in the rest of this chapter, uh, used frequently, not every verse, uh, is the, the three and four things format. There's probably a name for that. I don't know what it is, but there's, there's probably a name for that. There's, it says three things and then four things, and it's used again and again. Uh, you'll see this in several places and even in other books. Uh, God uses that once in a, in a prophecy, but it sounds like this. There are three things that are great, four things that are awesome, right? Um, it's it's kind of like if you're having a conversation with someone, I can think of three things that you just said that are wrong. Wait, four things. You know, it just gives you, it gives you that little bit of, of expansion. I'm going to list off four things here. Now, um, <clears throat> I like these because these have the flavor of a riddle. They cause me to think. I have to stop a little bit and go, okay, I'm not just going to keep reading. I'm going to stop for a moment and say, what's being communicated? What's the idea? What's, what's the communication to me? Oftentimes, when this is used, the fourth thing, a lot of times, again, not every time, the fourth thing is, for lack of a better term, the, the punchline, right? Three things, and then the last one is like, boom, that's what I'm trying to communicate. But that's not necessarily always the case. Um, again, we have to hold these things kind of with a little bit of, of uh, flexibility. An example of that, so let's look at an example in this chapter would be verse 29. Uh, verse 29 through 31, it says this, Three things are stately in their tread. Four are stately in their stride. The lion, which is mightiest among beasts and does not turn back before any, the strutting rooster, the he-goat, and a king whose army is with him. So in this proverb, we see things that are stately in their stride, a lion, a rooster, uh, a male goat, and a king with his army. In this case, the fourth thing is to teach us something about a king with his army. Right? One, one thing we could see is that they are all proud in the way that they strut and walk, but only one of them is backed up by thousands who will die for them. The trick is to not get caught up in the tool because uh, it's not always going to be the case that the fourth thing is, is the punchline, uh, but just know that that's the format. Let's look at another, another one of them. This one will not use the fourth line as the punchline. Punch uh, back up to verse 15. It says this, The leech has two daughters, give and give. Three things are never satisfied, four never say enough. Sheol, the barren womb, the land never satisfied with water, and the fire that never says enough. So in this proverb, we see an interesting word picture used. All right. First, it introduces the three and four proverb with the picture of a leech. And the leech, he says, has two daughters, two offspring, two things that are the fruits of the essence of being sucked dry. Give and give. Now, that's not to say that giving is bad. He's saying that someone or something that is looking to get what you have will only produce more requests for you to give more. Things that are in want tend to stay in want. There is never enough. He continues to give us a picture of there never being enough, the three and four things that, that never say enough. 
Sheol, or the common Hebrew term for death itself. So death is, is never satisfied. A woman who can't have a child. Uh, in that culture, in that time, a woman who didn't have any children would be absolutely frantic, desperate to have a child because that was a symbol of blessing. If you couldn't have a child, that was a symbol of a curse. Also, a, a dry land, a land that never has enough water, and fire itself. Fire only consumes. Fire only wants more. Things that never see enough, things that are never fully content. So we can see this series of three and four. There's no punchline. There's no fourth thing for us to condemn or to learn from. Instead, we see that all four of these things are showing us something that's wrong with us. Discontent. Again, never feeling that we have enough. Now, Agur offers an alternative example. And if we look carefully, we'll see it. Four things that he says are incredibly wise. Verse 24. Look down there with me. Four things on earth are small, but they are exceedingly wise. The ants are a people not strong, yet they provide their food in the summer. The rock badgers are a people not mighty, yet they make their homes in the cliffs. The locusts have no king, yet all of them march in rank. The lizard you can take in your hand, yet it is in king's palaces. So the question is, <clears throat> what about these things are so wise? We don't usually look to ants, or at least I don't. If I'm looking for an example of wisdom, I don't think about ants and locusts. It's not something that I would normally go to. Um, it's pretty unusual, and that's the point. This is to make us pause and think. This is to cause us to riddle on it for a bit. Let me offer one possible reason. These animals, the four listed, are all doing what they were created to do. They are all following, following in the format that God has created for their lives. The things that they were made to do, they are doing. So the wisdom is actually in that. Doing what they were created to do, not more, not less. The ants provide all of their own food, even though they're small. Rock badgers are small, but they live on cliffs. Locusts don't have kings or politicians, but somehow they follow rank. Lizards can be held in your hand, but they can come and go wherever they want. I think the point is, they operate in the ways that an amazing creator created them to operate in. Ants haven't devised a way to gather their food. They were made to be great collectors. If these animals were capable of contentment, I would call them content. If they were also capable of thanksgiving, if they were capable of praising God, then I would say that they do praise God. But they would praise Him for creating them to thrive within the category that God has put them in. Now, I'm not saying again that we shouldn't strive for gain in this life. I am saying that we should strive to be content with where God has made us and placed us and put us to be. 
We should strive to be content with who we are and what we're doing. So my question to you is, what were you created for? I'm not talking about careers. I know that's where your mind went right away. I'm not talking about place in this world. That's usually what we go to second. When we ask what we're created for, we think of what thing must I do, right? What achievement must I accomplish? What, what role in society do I have to fill? What job must I do and be super good at? That's actually not the question. I'm not talking about careers or positions or callings. Maybe a better way of asking that was, what were you recreated to do? The Apostle Paul answers that question very deliberately for us in the letter to the Colossians chapter 3. Paul says this, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. But now, you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. So, if you have been reborn in Jesus, then you have a new life, reborn in Him. You are to stop striving covetousness, and pride that once controlled your life. You are too then put on the new life. Paul goes on in verse 12 to tell us what we were recreated for. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. And if, that, if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all of these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, which indeed you were called to in one body. And be thankful. We talked earlier about how there is this tie between thankfulness for what we have and contentment with what we have. The other piece of that reliance on God for is the other piece of that is, is the reliance on God for what we get. This text said, you are to put on compassion, humility, meekness, patience, forgiveness, love. Now, what I don't want you to do is to make a note to be more kind and compassionate this week. That, that would be nice. That's not what I'm driving at. What I'm driving that is that you need to rely on God fully, on Jesus as the source of those things. We don't put on these things by mustering up the strength to do so. We put on these things through Christ himself. If you look at that list of humility, 
kindness, compassion, love, if you feel like I do, that you don't have those things just in store, ready to go, just to, just to pull on and, and use whenever you need to, just ready to be utilized, I have good news for you. No one here does. But Christ himself is the source of all those things. We have access to live in a new way, not by our striving, but by the gift of Jesus paid for with his life. And we're going to celebrate with thanksgiving, with thankfulness, with contentment, and with reliance that gift together as one body through the sacrament of communion. That is what we do when we come forward. If you lack, if you have need, if you are weary, come to the table. He is waiting and he is enough. Let's pray. Lord God, we we thank you so much for the kindness expressed to us in Jesus Christ, in his sacrifice and in his life. Uh, Lord, I pray that as we look at the list of things that we are to do in this life, if we look at the, the purpose that you have for us in the new life in Christ Jesus, that we would not give up, that we would not become weary in doing good, and that we would rely more fully in Jesus to supply those things. Lord, we are not humble. We are not meek. We are not kind. We are not compassionate. These things are not in us, but they are in you. God, I pray that as we move forward in this life, as we, as we continue from this point, that we remember that in order for us to be content with what we have, we have to rely on you for what we get. God, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the gifts that are expressed to us in being able to meet here this morning and for the gift of the sacrament of communion. I pray that as we come forward, it would be meaningful to us. I pray that we would come hungry. I pray that we would come thirsty. In Jesus' name, for his glory, amen.